This podcast is sponsored by Scope and the Optase Dry Eye Regimen. Heat, cleanse, and hydrate for best results for ocular surface disease. For more information and to request free samples and an introductory discount on your first order, log on to optase.com. This is Dr. Leslie O'Dell, a TFOS Global Ambassador here in the United States, and I am joined today by two wonderful doctors, um, both PhDs as well. Dr. James Wolfson is a professor and pro-vice chancellor at Aston University in the UK. He has published over 215 peer-reviewed academic papers and gives numerous international presentations. He has main research areas in the development and evaluation of ophthalmic instruments, contact lenses, intraocular lenses, and the tear film. He was a big role of the TFOS dues too, as serving as a harmonizer of the document and also worked on the diagnostic committee. We are joined also by Dr. Orla Murphy. She is a practicing optometrist and assistant lecturer at Technological University in Dublin with her main interests in contact lens, dry eye, blepharitis, and meibomian gland dysfunction. She has performed her PhD research on the focus of detection and management of Demodex, which is also a very exciting topic for me as well. It's one one of the things I really enjoy. Um, Well, we're here today to really kind of catch up in all of the things going on in the world. We're gonna be talking today about managing the dry eye patient in the current context. So first of all, thank you both for joining in today. So an international from the UK to Dublin to the United States, what a, what exciting technology we have, right, to be able to do this. So thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Indeed. Thank you. I'm sure things are you know similar and different for us, but the COVID crisis has certainly taken over our profession. Um, it started in Asia and moved across the continent, um, you know, the world really to here to the U.S. So we're kind of the latecomers to the to the COVID crisis. So I would really be interested in just hearing how things have been for you guys, how this is impacting your practices and your patient care, um, and what you're doing to try to overcome the challenges that we face in this current climate. Yeah, for for me, it's it's incredibly challenging. It, it came so fast, even though we saw China with it first. Um, and of course, has had a huge impact on on patient care and, and the delivery of that. Um, in some ways, we're fortunate with with dry eye that people aren't necessarily going to go blind from it if we don't um, manage them in the short term. Um, and to my knowledge, they're still able to get products, um, so that's helping them in terms of their ongoing management of dry eye. But of course, we're always seeing new patients, and those are permanently on hold. Um, we are allowed to hold emergency clinics, but they are um, for those emergencies, and that generally doesn't cover um, most dry eye. Yeah, I would um, kind of second what James has said there. In in Ireland, it's optometric practices essentially stopped, except for like that emergency care. Um, most practices are are closed or offering closed door policies or closed door practice. So you can ring if you have an emergency if your glasses break. They can use out of you know out of date prescriptions if necessary to um to get you new glasses to get you new contact lenses um but you cannot have any routine checkups routine aftercares nothing like that um and then from a dry eye point of view pharmacies are open so they will be able to 
you know, to get products, but um, it would be from a pharmacy. It wouldn't be from, from practice. There is a little bit of telemedicine going on um, and um, some practitioners are using the opportunity to be very proactive with their patients, phoning them up, checking how they're doing, possibly more than they can do in the, the normal day to day, because, of course, um, they're not being able to see patients. Um, so I think that some people are trying to make some opportunities out of this as well. Um, and obviously, dry eye being a chronic disease, it does need that ongoing management. Um, but yeah, well, here, um, well, so we have been closed to patient care probably just since late March or early April. Have you been um, closed longer than that? Or is that about the same timeline that you guys have been? We've been largely closed for about three weeks. Yeah, I would agree. We we closed just before St. Patrick's Day. Okay. Um, so coming up on a month, but not all practices closed initially. It was it was kind of left to, um, say, the the owner, so a lot of independent practices, they closed. I work for an independent um, optician in Dublin as well. Um, and he closed the minute that the schools were closed, he closed because you cannot like realistically um, work, you know, with you, you can't do your social distancing in a testing room. Um, but some practices had to wait until uh, it was there was government mandate um, to close for, you know, that we, we were no longer considered an essential business but you could open for emergencies we saw the same and it was it's been really interesting to see that because um until the cdc really made the recommendation of essential care and what that meant for eye care because a lot of doctors you know argued that they were essential um and were continuing to do routine vision exams and such but now we're pretty much the same as you both um open only to emergency care, which does really bring in the topic of telehealth and telemedicine. And many practices I know in the United States weren't really ready to go live with telehealth. And so it has been a, a scramble over the past three weeks, but it's been exciting for me to see, um, actually for myself, I'm not currently seeing patients at all. I was an employee doctor, and so I was among the furloughed. And, and so in my group, the optometry um, owners are the ones that are doing the emergency care and the telehealth. Um, but I, I have a lot of colleagues in the area, and it's been a, kind of exciting for me to see them embrace telehealth and also kind of learn what their challenges are as they go through it, whether it's you know, just getting a patient to be able to do video counseling with them, or if it's the billing part of it, what's been your experience with telehealth? Um, and how I wonder how that is different, you know, so I know here in the United States, some of the governing laws around telehealth were really relaxed, so that it didn't have to be performed in another professional's office. So telehealth for us before this COVID crisis was kind of if you were at your primary care doctor, they had a concern, for example, about diabetic retinopathy, they could do a telehealth call to us. But now we're able to call the patients in their homes. And um, I think even in, in some instances not have the video component, um, but they do encourage to have that video component. Yeah, I think for us, the professional bodies have been really quick to respond and to clarify, particularly where um, the regulations perhaps weren't that definitive, but but allowing practitioners to, to move into telehealth. Um, I know we'd, we run a number of clinical studies as well, and um, we very quickly had advice um, in terms of the ability to carry on managing those patients through telephone uh, and video consultation rather than physically having to, to see the patients. And just allowing professionals to be professionals and balancing the, the risk of not seeing that patient 
um, with uh, the potential benefits of them continuing in the study or or continuing to be managed. So um, I've, I think certainly in the UK, um, the professional bodies have really stepped up to the mark um, and reacted very quickly and in the interests of patients. Yeah, um, similar in Ireland as well. I suppose we're, we're very close. Um, we do, well, again, I would be like you. I was an employee, so I, I'm, no, I'm not taking part in any um, telehealth, but I, I know friends who own practices and my own um, employer. I suppose for them, they would be more promoting that if people want to get in touch with them or have any um, queries about anything, to they, they have given out their number. So I suppose when it comes to if if it came down to GDPR and, and those kind of things, um, they are they are they took the decision to give their information and allow people to contact them if required. And have you had any negative, you know, I've seen some, you know, patients are frustrated that we can't help them for certain instances, such as routine care. Um, I've seen some doctors here in the U.S. talking about patients that hadn't been into their clinics, you know, since for several years or were the ones that had missed appointments several times that now emergently, you know, emergently needing their glasses because they're on their computers at home and such. Um, I, I would hope that for the most part, patients are pretty understanding, but I didn't know if you've had any negative experiences like that. Yeah, no, no negatives. Our patients have been fantastic. And, and uh, you know, everybody knows it's a challenging situation that affects everyone. And I think that they've been incredibly supportive. Um, so how are you? I've been thinking about how we could do dry eye more, you know, from remote locations. I'm assuming in your studies that you're able to continue. You're not needing to do a lot of um, a lot of evaluation that you would be doing at the slit lamp. Yeah, so basically it's continuing mainly based on symptomology, which is a shame because, of course, you're losing the data of the actual signs. Um, yeah, even with the best telemedicine at the moment, we can you know see a red eye, for example, but we can't put a dye into someone's eye remotely, so um, we can't flip the lids. So there is information that we will, will naturally lose as a result. Um, and some of the sort of thought processes are now are about whether we can invent better ways for patients to to be able to do more remote telemedicine but but some of these things are really challenging sounds like some more future research for you um, to be developing some new technology <laughs> for us um, the other thing that this has given us is the luxury of time right we're usually scrambling from clinic to our families and you know from meeting to meeting and we don't often have time to actually pause and be able to learn ourselves. And so I've been taking this opportunity, um, I know personally, to be able to do webinars where I'm learning. Um, have you guys been taking advantage of that at all for your own further education during this time? Uh, for me, um, actually, it's more busy than ever before because I'm, I'm running two uh, university departments and uh, I'm in charge of all the ethics for the university. So um, that's quite challenging at this time. So I seem to spend my time on um, Zoom and all these other platforms. Um, I did do a webinar the other day, um, Tuesday night, uh, with 1,700 people registered for wow. it across Europe. So certainly wow. the interest in CPD is huge. And, and I did have to do a lot of research for that because obviously COVID is not my normal um, area of research. But you know the impact of that, particularly on things like contact lenses, is very much in, in practitioners' minds at the moment. So um, some challenges, but uh, not not quite as much free time as I would like to uh, to study a bit more. Yeah, our um, regulatory body in Ireland changed in the last couple of years um, to CORU from the Opticians Board. And 
up until now, there hasn't, you you know, obviously CPD and CET has been recommended, but it, it, it's not been audited. Um, but as of this year going forward, it, they're going to start auditing it. So there's been a huge push for opticians and optometrists to uh, spend this downtime wisely and start getting their their CPD in order, get their por- portfolios together. And uh, yeah, so I suppose a lot more learning. But I suppose from a personal point of view, um. I'm hoping to go down more of a kind of a postdoc research now in the next couple of months once all of this is over. So I know things life is going to get very busy <laughs> once once all this calms down. So I'm trying to make the most of having some time off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's good. It, we all need a pause sometimes. So it, it's good to take advantage of that for sure. Uh, I mean, that brings up a couple of good points. This contact lens debate has been just that over here in in the United States debated whether it was safe or not to be wearing contact lenses. In my mind, um, you know, a daily wear contact lens doesn't pose any additional risk. And even, you know, a lens that's being worn two weeks, as long as there's hand washing and the normal care and clean of that lens, I don't see that as, you know, an added risk to, to a patient during this time. And I'm sure that's what you were speaking to on your webinar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's one of those areas, and, and I guess it's always going to be true of, of any new thing, that there are plenty of myths and things out there, and, and um, people take the information and interpret it differently. But while we know you can get uh, signs of virus within a tear film and also in the conjunctiva, um, there's absolutely no evidence that um, contact lenses can um, spread the disease if you use good hygiene and basically just follow our normal contact lens instructions, which are not to wear them if you are unwell, um, to wash your hands, to make sure you clean them and store them properly. Um, so again, I see this as an area of, of opportunity. I think certainly hand washing is uh, far more rigorously performed across the nation now than ever before. And I just hope that after this, people will carry on um, using those good habits that they've had to develop. Um, but for people to recognise that actually contact lenses are, is a very safe um, form of, of um, visual correction um, if managed properly and again can be um, managed. I know it's obviously a challenge with dry eyes sometimes to wear contact lenses, but contact lenses have got so much better over the years. Um, and again, working with their practitioner, they should be able to find a, a solution that works for them. And likewise, there's no evidence that spectacles protect the eyes any more than not wearing spectacles or contact lenses. So again, um, contact lenses is is a good method still. Um, And likewise, I think for people's mental health, the fact that they can continue in in one routine that they traditionally did before all this broke up um, is a good thing and something that we should be supporting as practitioners. I definitely agree. Routine and normalcy, however you can find that, seems to be how we can all kind of stay sane throughout this really uncertain time. Um, what do you think about just how we'll get back to clinic and how that will impact us and even, you know, the, the risk to us, the doctors, when we do return to practice? How do you how do you see that phasing back in, I guess? God, um, that's a it's a good question I think personally for me it's going to be I will have less I know I will have less hours Um, it won't be straight I don't think it will be straight back to you know six seven days a week of clinics and fully booked and I think people will be maybe a little bit 
slow to come out of their kind of cocooning and, and isolation. And maybe it will be those that have, you know, broken their glasses or they're really struggling with the vision in their glasses that will be will be coming out. And as well, I mean, there's a massive there's going to be a huge there's a huge loss of income for a lot of people. So there isn't going to be a massive amount of money floating around to necessarily buy, you know, designer very focals, you know, contact lenses, daily total ones or you know, any of the daily brands that are kind of a little bit more expensive than the or a little bit more of a luxury for a lot of people. So I think it will be it'll be kind of like being in a recession, I would imagine. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it, it will be phased. Um, and, and a lot of it is, I guess, consumer confidence, both in terms of coming back and, and seeing us. Um, you know, if they feel that they don't have to put themselves in that close um, examination space that we all work in, um, you know, maybe they will delay on that. And um, as Orla said, you know, the cost again will be um, perhaps more of an issue on people's mind. I think counter to that, I suspect that um, students will find it more difficult to find jobs. So that might actually mean that there's more work um, for people who are already um, employed and, and taken off furlough. Um, so again, there, there could be some sort of counteracts um, to that. And also, I guess the government have all put in huge amounts of money to try and keep the economy going. And I imagine that there will be a massive um, push for them to get back to or, or convince the population that normality should be resumed as as quickly as possible once they phase um, people back into um, free movement. So uh, again, that may help us in terms of actually people feeling, no, actually, I, I need to pick up my life. And likewise, people have paused life for, for three months. Does that mean they're thinking, well, actually, I, I should have had a sight test by now. You know, I, I need to, to get back in. My dry eyes aren't as well managed as I want them to be you know I had that appointment set up or I was thinking about it I really do need to get that in place so um, again perhaps there's a role for us as as practitioners to be really proactive that this is an opportunity for people to to get back to normality and and get back into the normal swing of life. Um, I, I agree I think that I also think that we'll have to practice you know continued social distancing in our clinics and like you were saying Orla not be working at full tilt when we first begin, um, trying to space patients, definitely things like masks. Um, I know that here when, when any of the doctors are seeing the emergency patients, they're making sure that both doctor and patient are masked before they enter into the clinic. Just even the, the cleaning that has changed, which like you were saying, is definitely for the best and hopefully we keep up those good hygiene habits. Um, someone needs to come up with a really good hand lotion though, because now that... <laughs> I've been yeah, washing <laughs> yes, my hands look like an 80 year old woman, but that's okay. But I do think that, you know, as far as dry eye goes, um, I've seen a lot of doctors kind of start to, to strategize how are they going to open back up their clinics. And, and these patients definitely are, although not vision threatening, you know, these are patients that have a lot of needs. Um, and I think a three month hiatus from us in clinic, you know, there's a lot of handholding and touch, you know, that we have to do with these patients um, as they go through their journey with dry eye. So I, I think that those patients are going to be certainly anxious to get back to us. Um, we've also been talking just about any kind of, you know, treatment-based uh, dry eye modality that was kind of put on pause, trying to get those patients back in, you know, even just to try to uh, increase our own revenues, right, for when we, we do get back to work. So I, I do think that 
you know, it's always debated that dry eye is not as significant as other diseases, you know, such as glaucoma, but with the anxiety and depression rates that we see in those patients, I, I'll be really curious to see how, how our patients actually return to us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, obviously, what, what are we doing as we're sort of um, not in work, we're spending far more time on screens. So right. um, certainly I'm in front of a screen pretty much all day long um, and I can feel my own dry eyes going now. But, um, you know, I imagine that actually dry, dry eye will be far more on people's minds when they, they come out of this. Um, some of the things I've seen also is, uh, speaks just to that, um, James. It talks about, yeah, I've seen a lot of clinics actually release some videos about um, techniques for the computer because, because like you're saying, pe people are at home working from home and whether they are doing more video calls or, you know, or whatnot, depending on their employment, they're they could be logging more time. I think if you look at your iPhones and you check your screen times, all of our screen times have really boosted. If we're not Zoom, you know, checking into on the news, we're doing these Zoom calls and, and such. So I think that those, you know, the 2020 role with blinking um, can really be a way that you can engage your patient base during this time. What other kind of advice would you give to your colleagues during the, you know, this time in particular of the pause of the COVID crisis? I think it is a good opportunity to to think through the practice that you want to offer. Um, certainly, I find um, most of my life is reactionary um, because I just don't have the time to sort of think and prepare ahead. And there are lots of plans that are sort of there in the back of my mind that I'd like to do, but you don't get much time to to plan them. Um, and I think certainly as, as optometry moves, um, I guess, more from... Um, product-based to, to more service-based, um, particularly in dry eye. I think there's some, some huge opportunities to offer better services to our patients, to um, get up to date with the latest recommendations of how we diagnose and, and manage patients. Um, and I've heard some, some really inventive ways that people are um, supporting the whole sort of hygiene and, and the, the thinking of patients around the need to really look after their eyes much as we look after our teeth um, you know again if we go back to traditional optometry it's very much sort of product driven you go to the optometrist when you need a new pair of glasses or something like that and and while we instill the the health aspects on them um, people in their mindset certainly in the, in the UK with the the sort of NHS mindset you know things should be free um, and that you know it's something that you do when you have to like visiting a GP rather than dentistry model which is much more about the well actually you have responsibilities to brush and floss every day but likewise you're coming in regularly to the to the practice for us to check how things are to give that sort of super clean and to direct what you should be doing for the next six month period yeah and i would i would agree with what james has said there and i would add that you know for practitioners now is a good time to to educate yourself on the, you know, the parts of dry eye that we can help with right now, you know, if it is triaging a patient with telehealth, you know, educating them on the chronic nature of it, the management of it, be it dietary or, um, you know, ocular hygiene and, and things like that, things that they can do themselves at home that they don't physically have to, to be with us for us to do for them. Um, because these are things that you know, we will, they will come see us and we will give them this advice, but they're going to have to do all of this management at home themselves anyway. So, um, you know, if you can have, if you can, you know, get, get comfortable with that yourself, 
um, so that when you go back to practice that you're in a in a better position to to manage these patients and and a lot of it a lot of dry eye patients they just want to be listened to and and felt like you're not just brushing them off being like oh yeah try this drop and kind of move on you know they that they want you to go yeah I understand this is a this is a real problem why don't we try this um and and the fact that I think they like to think that there are there are things that they can do themselves that are within their control um obviously it doesn't work for 100% of people but it's um there there definitely is a mental aspect to it which takes us to you know takes us really to the TFAS work right so tear film and ocular surface society has been such a big part of what we know with dry eye disease um and you know still some of our colleagues are not as familiar with the works of TFAS. You know, I've done lectures and ask, you know, how, who has seen the TFAS Do's 2 document? And still it surprises me the number of doctors that are practicing dry eye and they aren't using this governing body, you know, of this document that I find so valuable and couldn't do my dry eye work from day to day without. Um, so really, I think it's a good opportunity for us to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about that that work. So TFAS Do's 2 was released in 2017. Um, and every time I hear, I mean, not every time, but sometimes when I hear people talk about that, they are say like, well, good luck reading that 400 and some page document. And that that sort of is just as annoying to me because um, even the first Do's, I actually did read every page of it and thought if I want to be treating my patients, I want to know everything there is to know. Um, so I appreciate that summary. To me, it's far better than reading the 20,000 research papers that went into developing the document. Um, so this one in particular um, had 150 experts from across the, the globe, 23 countries. Um, and, and Dr. Wolfson, you were a, a big part of that because the harmonization of that document, I can only imagine, was quite the task. Um, and, then, and then also being on that diagnostic committee. Um, so why don't you talk us through a little bit of the process of working with TFOS um, and that project? Um, yeah, so TFOS, uh, it sort of really started a trend, I think, in, in um, the eye care space, because obviously we now have the myopia reports. Um, I'm just chairing one on contact lenses as well. Um, so really the idea here is to help the practitioner. Um, as you referred to, you know, it looked at nearly 20,000 references, um, summarised that then in, in 400 pages of report. But even that, we don't expect practitioners necessarily to read all of it. There, there are summaries and um, lots of good presentations online to really help you as a, a practitioner to get your head around this. Because um, there definitely are, of course, the dry eye specialists and they need to know it in a lot more detail. But all of us have a role in dry eye. The, the screening step is very easy to do. Um, many of our patients, we know that the prevalence of, of dry eye is very common. Um, typically around sort of 30% we find of a, an adult population. That's a huge number of patients that you see each day um, that have dry eyes. And that does need a specialist service if you're really going to manage that. Um, but if you don't have that, that's, you know, you should be referring those patients to, to someone who does. And in terms of sort of pulling together that literature, again, the idea was really to try and make something that was for practitioners to be able to um, do in terms of their everyday practice. So a much clearer definition of what dry eye is. Um, there's still this sort of fallacy that, that you can have dry eye without symptoms, for example. It's very clear, not just in TFOS Use 2, but um, in 2007 when TFOS originally met, that actually what we're defining as dry eye has symptoms. 
symptoms and signs. Of course, it's part of a subset, which is ocular surface disease, and ocular surface disease is still important. But if you're managing someone's ocular surface disease because you're going to fit them with contact lenses or you're going to do refractive surgery on them, then the conversation is very different because it's not about managing their symptoms. There aren't the level of symptoms to manage. So with dry eye disease, then now we've got a, a definition of it and also understanding some of the pathophysiology. We develop some differential diagnosis questions, particularly for our non-eye care um, colleagues, pharmacists, GPs, because again, dry eye is ending up in those sorts of places. And if they don't have the questions to ask to refine that down, my brother's a pharmacist, so I'm very aware of uh, some of the issues there. Um, and we work with the Royal Pharmaceutical Society to help pharmacists in terms of understanding when it's appropriate for them to, to point to over-the-counter and when it's appropriate for them to, to refer to an eye care specialist. And then with the, the diagnosis of the the disease, again, we wanted tests that were, yes, sensitive and specific, but also could be done in practice. And likewise, narrowing down the hundreds of tests that are available and everybody has their preferred test, but it's no good for a patient to turn up in one practice and be diagnosed with dry eye and turn up to another practice and, and the practitioner go, oh no, by my test, you don't have dry eye. So what we did was we came up with um, a group of tests to, to look at the loss of homeostasis, that concept that this tear film of a tenth of the thickness of the human hair can be very easily disturbed and what we're doing with our signs is picking up the, the key aspects of that disturbance in terms of tear instability particularly measured non-invasively so we're not disturbing that tear film with the very test that we're trying to measure it looking at osmolarity because that's one of the pathophysiologies of dry eye disease and then finally looking at ocular surface staining complete ocular surface so lid margins um, conjunctiva with lysamine green and cornea with fluorescein. And then very simple algorithms, and you'll have seen the, the diagrams, hopefully, if you haven't, they just take you through those different steps to make a firm diagnosis. Doesn't then matter whether you do other tests as well for your own particular um, desires, but likewise, if you make a diagnosis, moving on to subclassification, because that then can inform your management. Well, you summarized that so beautifully. <laughs> um, but Try the, to keep the, it short. <laughs> yes. The defi and, and so, again, it doesn't have to be so hard, right? That's what I love about the diagnostic section that came out of TFOS News, too, is, I mean, I know it, it wasn't simple to get to what you have landed on, but you have made it very simple and digestible. And just like you were saying, our colleagues are looking to these hundreds of diagnostic equipment to see how can I do dry eye better in my clinic. But, you know, with the TFOS News, too, we see that, you can actually do it before you even purchase any kind of equipment, um, you know, just with your fluorescein stain and a symptom, as simple as that. And then you can move on to diagnostic equipment as you see best suited. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the reports are there to drive the equipment development as well. We've seen over the last couple of years since TFOS used to a whole load of new equipment for doing things like non-invasive breakup time. And as I referred to earlier, I think it's a real opportunity for um optometrists and eye care practitioners to specialize in dry eye. You know, I don't believe we can be a specialist in everything. Um, there are the practitioners who act like the general practitioner um, of the, the medical world. And so there are, are signposting people um, as needed. But I think it's great to have your speciality as well. Like many practices now, each um, GP will have their own speciality area. Uh, and dry eye is something you can make your own. There's plenty of patients, plenty of 
commercial opportunities, but also just a huge opportunity to help our patients and to take something that has largely been um, something that we cause through things like glaucoma medication and, and people cause through things like refractive surgery. And the digital um, devices. And the digital <laughs> yeah. devices and actually manage those patients and, and um, allow people to have um, healthy ageing. I, I think that's just absolutely huge for our profession at the moment. And the whole idea of loss of homeostasis in the in the definition and how that was added, I think, um, really does, like you said, help us to better understand that the tear film is dynamic. It is constantly being influenced by our environment, by our own, you know, immune system and nervous system. Um, I think that's pretty powerful. Now, do you use this, Orla, in your? How do you employ the diagnostic criteria, you know, from TFAS dues to when you're evaluating your patients? Do you? Do you kind of think about that table while you're doing things so you're sure that you are, in fact, treating dry eye? Um, and then do you go through the sequence of subtyping? What does that look like, you know, in your clinic? So I have had the pleasure of having to read the entire document as well and try to condense it down into lectures for undergraduate students. Um, so I suppose from from the teaching side of things, it would be very much um you know, going through almost exactly what is in TFOS and trying to teach the students that when they are seeing uh, patients within their within their student clinics and when they finish and they go off into practice that, you know, to, to follow the steps, to start with your symptomology and to, to triage your questions and then to, you know, do your slit lamp examination, your non-invasive test first, then your fluorescein, etc., if you have lysamine green, great. If you don't, your fluorescein, you know, it is better than absolutely nothing. Um, personally, as a as a practitioner, symptoms are, you know, your triaging questions are obviously a, a huge thing. Um, and then, yeah, I don't have access to any non-invasive um, equipment, but I would use fluorescein as my staining. I don't have lysamine green, um, but I would I would depend on a slit lamp examination um, and symptomology um to and kind of case history to to manage my patients um predominantly in practice yeah so certainly in the uk we're trying to set up dry eye clinics across the universities um with students rotating through those so they can see how um, systematic it can be in terms of the the diagnosis of dry eye and i think that's really helping um we do a sort of live stage show at various conferences on, on dry eye. And again, the, the big thing we find from practitioners is they, they realise that actually it is relatively simple to do this. Um, you know, if you're going to do it um, fully, then you do need access to things like listening green and, and we're beginning to get better access to that more um, recognised and regulated versions of, of listening green, etc. Um, and, and, you know, our... Um, attempts over the next few years is really just to, to give people the, the tools uh, in an inexpensive way that to, to do that diagnosis in a much more systematic way. Yeah, and I would add to that as well that, I mean, when I was doing my um, PhD research, I actually found the TFOS um, and the Jews project was a huge benefit to guide, you know, my, my methodology. Um, you know, it, if you're going to follow any methodology, you know, it's, it's a good one to be able to reference. Um, and I was lucky because that was being done in the college, in the university, as opposed to in, in private practice. Um, you know, I had access to osmolarity testing and non-invasive tear breakup time and, 
you know, slit lamp cameras and, and all of all of the nice fancy things that you might not have access to in in practice. Um, but I think what I like, what I really like mostly about the Jews too, is it really splits into, you know, your basic everyday practice. This is what you do. Um, and if you have a specialized clinic, then you can do these, but it's not 100% necessary. And then getting even, I mean, first of all, just getting that sound diagnosis and realizing that a lot of patients have a combination of aqueous deficient and evaporative dry eye. I think that was another big take home. And then really even what the goal of our treatment is getting back to homeostasis, right? So we're trying to restore the tear film um, and, and then looking to see how these stepwise approach of our management um, is for the patient. And I know that, you know, listening to people present on the the management side of TFOS 2s too. It's not to be, you know, you start at step one and you then you move to step two. It's more just to guide wherever your patient is within that scheme. So they might enter in at step three, right? If they have a lot of corneal keratitis, but you're going to be doing all of the things that are involved through step one to three. Um, and a lot of that actually, if you, you know, and you both know, but um, if you look at just the stage one management, it's really get based around education. And what you were talking earlier to about, about what the patient can be doing at home with lid management, you know, lid hygiene, different things like that. Uh, how do you use that stage management approach in your, you know, patient care? I would, I am a big fan of lid hygiene and warm compresses um, as an adjunct to, you know, using drops when necessary. So drops are really handy. Um, you know, they will they'll get rid of your symptoms there and then, but it's not fixing the problem. Um, whereas I feel that lid hygiene and warm compresses can go a long way towards reducing your dependency on drops. Um, and that has been my experience with, with patients. Um, you know, lid hygiene can be with, with the wipes, but I mean, you can also use, um, I know for some of the studies that I used, we used, tea tree based face washes um and patients have had you know good success with with those as well well definitely if you're doing definitely if you're doing a lot of research with demodex you've been focused on the tea tree oil based <laughs> um cleanser sorry to interrupt go ahead james yeah no problem at all no i think lids um are hugely important from from you know, many different aspects the, the sort of um the phritis, the demodex, the um, warm compresses, all of those sorts of uh, aspects. Um, and it's interesting with, with patients because, of course, um, what we think is a, a very easy management to, to adopt um, something like a warm compress, someone else will go, it's the right pain because then I need to be home at the time, I'm going to use it, etc. So some people do then prefer the, the simpler wipe or, or the drop. Um, and I guess the biggest disappointment, and I was involved in the, in the management report as well, was, you know, we'd hope that the, the evidence would be out there to sort of really guide practitioners in terms of, well, this kind of patient, this is what you do as your first choice, and it, it's going to be successful in, in this percentage of cases. But, you know, you get to this stage, and if you haven't got symptoms down to this level, then you swap to a pharmaceutical. That, that just didn't exist. Um, and while we tried to sort of populate the triangle of between the aqueous and evaporative and with severity, we just couldn't do it from, from the evidence. So one of the things we've done since then is a big survey with over 1,200 practitioners worldwide to have a look at what how they currently practice. 
So we can actually now fill that space and that will come out in the academic literature um, shortly looking at, you know, you know, where do people offer guidance? Well, what um, treatments do they apply more for their aqueous deficiency rather than their evaporative? Which are the ones at more end of the far end of severity to try and again give people a little bit of a benchmark to sort of feel where where are, are we? But as you said, Leslie, um, we couldn't be prescriptive and, and maybe we'll never be able to be prescriptive in terms of, well, actually, with this kind of patient, you do exactly this. But we are now trying to use things like big data to better understand what we're doing with patients and what works best. Um, so it's not you as an individual practitioner just using your experience. Actually, you can rely on the, the experience of thousands of practitioners in terms of what works for, for patients. So a long way to go, particularly in, in the management space. And of course, many new managements are coming out all the time um, that we keep an eye on. Um, but some real opportunities, I think, to, to work with our patients to, to better understand what we should be doing um, at all levels of the disease. And of course, the vast majority of us are dealing with the much lower levels and the mild to moderates rather than necessarily the severe ones that often are the ones that are, are in the publications. I'm not sure... Um... How if you guys uh, have had this experience or if you uh, have a, an opinion on this um, but what I found and I think is going to be probably something that we'll need to take into consideration going forward um, is that in my study the younger patients who are very um, they, you know they want everything now like right now so they want the magic pill that's going to fix this they'll take this you know prescription and it's done it's it's fixed in a day or or you know two days they don't they don't want to spend 10 minutes sitting there with their warm compress or having to clean their eyelids every night um but I have to say some of the older patients that I had absolutely loved the warm compresses especially the the ones that were working nearly you know I mean the feedback that I got from them was just like they were looking forward to their 10 minutes chill out on their own you know everybody was told no this is this is my time don't come near me I'm doing my warm compresses and they found it super relaxing and a lot of them did it at night before they went to bed and the amount of them I mean I didn't study this wasn't part of the results this is just anecdotal feedback that was given to me but the amount of them that were just like oh my god I'm sleeping so much better than I was before but the younger students are the younger the younger participants oh my God, no, they were atrocious. They just, they had no patience. They, they couldn't hack it. Now, I don't know if, uh, if that has been your experience or what your opinion is on that, but um, that I just said, I'd throw that in. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, we certainly find, and we've, we've done some studies, I think it was about 2011, we did one on, on one of the warm compresses and, and just the effect it had on dropping people's symptoms. And again, that sort of, well, actually, I really enjoy this because it's a nice, uh, way to relax in the evening or, or when I first wake up um, and just you know five minutes morning and evening had a massive effect even six months later after they'd finished using it as part of the study at least after two weeks um, so it can be really powerful but it is one of the areas that we're exploring particularly with in-office treatment one of my concepts is that actually in-office treatment is a good way to manage those patients who um, don't want the hassle of, of everyday treatment um, so um, we're trying to see whether, for example, coming in for IPL means that they don't need to use their drops so often, et cetera, over that period of time. Because I, I think you know, we all have different lifestyles uh, and some people do want that sort of 
um, you know, do it to me now and, and don't hassle me over the next period of time, whereas other people are quite happy to do the sort of routine part. Um, um, yeah, so that's, that's a, a big part of this. And I think the other thing we do need to remember is particularly with ocular surface disease, we're, we're recognizing how um, devastating that can be on wearing contact lenses, doing refractive surgery, etc. For those patients, quite often the ocular surface disease is identified quite late. It's only because they come in for contact lenses that their eyes are examined in detail and someone spots that they have ocular surface disease. For them, they do need a quick fix because you can't really say to them, look, we're going to put off your refractive surgery for two years while we manage your, your ocular surface disease. So I, th I think for the future, we will need some, some sort of treatments for the quick hit. Um, let's get you to a place that's good, um, as well as that actually this is a chronic disease. This is something that you, know, you will be taking um, for long periods of time. And while we can probably get you in a reasonably good place, um, that's not going to take away the need for, for ongoing management. And I think that we've seen that a little, you know, actually with the ASCRS guidelines for the surgical, I mean, they use kind of the backbone of TFOS dues too, in to see how ready is your patient for surgery. And then they do encourage more aggressive treatment to get that patient ready for, you know, one month, maybe versus two years to be a surgical candidate. Um, I, I have seen the same thing, Orla, um, as far as the younger population of patients. And, and actually speaking to what James said, it has been an opportunity for me to introduce my Bomian gland treat, treatments, my Bomian gland clearing treatments earlier. And I'm, I've kind of been surprised by um, that younger generation and their interest in preventative medicine um, and also um, investing in their health. I think it's been really well received. So we do different kind of meibomian gland clearing in my practice, whether it is um, lipoflow, you know, um, thermal pulsation, or even some manual expression now with um, things like tear care. But I, I actually have treated a, a, a lot of patients in their 20s that have heavy digital device use that are don't even want to be bothered by using tears. And that warm compress is you know, is, is not time <laughs> efficient for them. Right. Yeah. Um, although I've sometimes seen patients do one eye and then the other so that they don't have to stop whatever it is that they're doing on their computers. But really, uh, you know, what you were saying about how the TFOS work sparks research um, and how, you know, people like both of you take that information and try to help progress what we can do, you know, with our treatments. What's, what's been amazing is to see all of the warm compresses, you know, that we finally have gotten away from washcloths <laughs> and baby shampoo is amazing. Right. And so we have good sound science that shows a washcloth is really, you know, basically a waste of time for the patient. It's not giving us any therapeutic effect and just seeing all of the warm compress options that we have for patients and the reusability of them. Um, maybe the only challenge sometimes is the microwave is downstairs and they're upstairs because they want to be in their bed, you know, doing that, the warm compress. But um, it's just been nice to actually see, you know, new technology based on this science take off and, and companies really employ what they're learning from documents like the TFOS dues and TFOS dues too to really help us in clinic. Um, and we've seen that also with the, the amount of lid cleansing products that we have available now too, whether it's hypochlorous acid or tea tree oil um, and just that maintenance of the lid hygiene so 
So important. What's your take? Um, because a lot of work came out of this report with the iatrogenic section talking about things like glaucoma in particular, surgery, and then even topical medications and preservatives. So um, that has definitely been a big shift, I feel like, looking at preservative systems and figuring out what is better to maintain tear film stability for our patients. What's your take on preservatives and how do you have that conversation you know, with patients in your clinics? Um, well, as much as, as possible, I, um, I don't recommend any drops that have preservatives in them um, when it comes to dry eye. I I'd always advise my patients to go for the, the ones that, that are preservative free. Um, and, you know, traditionally they were only ever available on minims, but you can now get them, you know, in the, in the bottles that have shelf life for four or six months um, and they are preservative free be it they have a vacuum pump or you know there's there's different systems in the in the tops of them um and i just explained to my patients that you know if if they're using a drop that has preservatives in it then in the long run they could end up causing more damage than you know what they're trying to trying to treat that it it makes no sense you know it's like trying to clean a table or a window with a dirty cloth like it's it's you're not doing any good um so that that would be my own my own personal recommendation i i avoid them as much as possible yeah likewise preservatives are just bad um and um it's a challenge more in, in the health system where of course um, they are perhaps more money conscious because it's being provided for free as far as the the patient is being concerned or, or for a fixed um um, prescription price. So we are working with hospitals to look at um, the predictability of problems with preservatives because um, while they, they continue to, to uh, give out preservative type um, prescriptions, it's going to cost them a lot more if those patients end up coming back to them with um, sore red eyes, etc. Or particularly with glaucoma, they stop using their medication because actually it's really uncomfortable to use. Um, and of course, that then has huge problems because the um, managing physician is then thinking that this is what's happening. You know, their pressure is not going down with the treatment and having to use um, perhaps more risky um, medications, but actually it's just purely a compliance thing. So um, I think it is something that, that TFOS again uh, flagged. There's a huge amount of uh, evidence behind it. And I think it's our responsibility as practitioners to do lots of education. But as all are referred to, I think the companies are really stepping up for um, developing better ways of um, delivering pharmaceuticals in a non-preserved form uh, and that has to be the future. And even having that convenience of the bottle um, that is preservative free. I know for some patients they have trouble with the preservative free vials because of the way they recap and they you know they feel like they're wasting it throughout the day because they can't take it with them to work or you know wherever they're headed. Um, so I think just that science really of the preservative free in a bottle has really um, been pretty awesome to see too. Um, interesting about the glaucoma is you're right, absolutely ab about adherence and compliance issues. And that doctor would, you know, most likely be now adding a second medication thinking that the target pressure wasn't achieved. And now we have just multiple medications, usually BAK laden and bigger problems for the ocular surface. It's, I actually started my training here in the I did a residency at the Baltimore VA and I was very heavily trained in glaucoma management and kind of fell into dry eye 
disease um, after working with a refractive and cataract surgeon for many years. But um, when I was training with the glaucoma surgeons, you know, everybody's cornea had three plus keratitis. Nobody ever once mentioned it. So what's been interesting to me and exciting is to see glaucoma and the glaucoma specialists actually embrace this. You know, they now know that it's a problem. They see it as a barrier to adherence. They see um, BAK as not only that, but also harmful to the trabecular meshwork, um, the conjunctiva tissue when they want to be doing surgical procedures and embracing just alternate preservative systems and preservative-free medications. Um, so it's been really exciting to see the acceptance of dry eye through the different specialties that we have in eye care, I would say. Um, well, I think we did a great job of, of summarizing where we are with, with dry eye. What about just a, a kind of last thoughts that we want to share with our listeners today? Orla, let's start with you. <laughs> um, well, I think... With if we're gonna you know keep it with dry eye and keep it with COVID nineteen and we're still self isolating and we're um in lockdown um and I think this you know goes out to both you know be it if you're a practitioner and you're listening or if you're just a a patient who has interest in dry eye and you're listening um keep your eyes clean and you know go to your pharmacy and get some preservative free drops and. But hygiene is a, a big thing. Yeah, I think for me, I'd want to really um, emphasize, I guess, the opportunities there currently are in, in dry eye. Um, I know patients really struggle to find good dry eye practices still. Um, and I think it's just a real opportunity for eye care practitioners to offer a, a new service if they're not already offering a service. Um, patients seem very willing to um, engage, or, or the vast majority of them, to, to engage in those services to, to benefit directly. Um, and, and people, you know, are very aware that uh, they're living longer, etc. And they want to do that in a healthy uh, way with a, a full quality of life. And I think that this is an area particularly where we can um, really raise our game, um, much better standardization of what we offer, better instrumentation to, to make the diagnosis, to communicate with our patients, um, and then better management's coming along, much more standardized. I used to work at Moorfields Eye Hospital during my training and I, I was always really worried about giving advice about um, these sort of warm flannels and dipping them in boiling water and stuff, just the, the health and safety of it. Um, but the fact that we can get much more standardized treatments, we sort of know what we want to do in terms of heating the, the eyelids, for example, uh, and manufacturers are coming up with really inventive ways to, to do that both for in-office or um, for um, patients to use on a, on a daily basis. And again, we can work with individual patients to, to work with their lifestyle to, to maximize their benefit. Really just hitting home that daily routine of hygiene and um, keeping the, the tear film in balance and, and really just the impact that dry eye has on the patients. Um, and, and to get back to one of the previous points that you made, Orla, these patients are seeking you know, our advice. They've oftentimes been to multiple practitioners before they, they get into the chair of a dry eye specialist. So they, they, they feel um, underwhelmed by their experience and they really feel um, you know, a lot of anxiety because they don't have a clear diagnos uh, diagnosis or management plan. And just getting to that improving quality of life for our patients, improving the quality of vision, allowing them to be able to maintain um, 
a healthy work habit, right? Being able to do things that they need to do for their lifestyle, whether it be computer use, whether it be contact lens wear, um, even whether it be doing things that make them feel good, like wearing eye cosmetics, you know, all of these things go to the quality of life for our patients. And that's what we really have to really remember is that we're here to serve the patients. And I think we'll all be anxious to get back to that job that we have hopefully in the not so distant future. Um, but I, I really appreciate you guys, um, your time today, taking time out of, of what is new busy, but <laughs> busy schedules. Um, so thank you so much for um, joining t- today on this podcast. And I think that we've given some great overviews to TFOS News 2, to the current climate with COVID. And I, I really appreciate your time. 